preparing to talk about this topic, I asked ChatGPT to give me an answer to the question, how do we solve the Israel crisis? And what came back was essentially, we need dialogue and de-escalation. Well, the one thing you can be absolutely certain of is that the Israeli government has no interest in either of those ideas. Over the past year, Israeli forces have arrested thousands of Palestinians in the West Bank and killed more than 200 Palestinians, civilians as well as fighters. Just last month, military and police forces attacked in Nablus on the West Bank. They killed 11 people, most of whom were unarmed. They wounded more than 100, and over half of those had gunshot wounds and caused severe damage across the city. This attack was carried out in daylight, with people being gunned down in the streets. And then four days later, a pogrom took place in the nearby township of Huara. Settlers torched 30 homes and cars, they killed one Palestinian and injured two more. Now the word pogrom is a Russian word and it entered the English language in the 19th century, the late 19th century, to describe the the horrors of racist attacks carried out by far-right activists with the blessing of the state in Tsarist Russia against Jewish communities. And for more than a hundred years, the idea of a pogrom has been an attack on Jewish people. But what we saw in Hawara was a pogrom carried out by Israeli settlers against Palestinians. And what makes this possible is that Israel is currently governed by its most right-wing government ever. And there have been a lot of right-wing governments before this. It's led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who supports a plan to formally annex large areas of the occupied West Bank. And by annexing those areas, they would become part of Israel proper and directly uh, part of the state. Netanyahu has been quoted as saying, Israel is not the state of all its citizens. According to the basic law that we passed, Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and its alone. And this is why a number of organisations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have condemned Israel as an apartheid state. It is by law a matter of fact that different people living within its borders have different rights, different options and different and different freedoms. And that's an apartheid system. Now Netanyahu came back into office recently at the head of a coalition government, and that's not unusual. Israeli governments are nearly always uh, coalition governments because of the nature of the voting system. But this time he came into office with people from the religious Zionism list, the most far-right list uh, in the election. And so the National Security Minister, absolutely at the heart of the government, with enormous powers uh, over the lives and deaths of, uh, of Palestinians, a man called Itamar Ben-Gvir, he's a man who praises Baruch Goldstein. Baruch Goldstein was an Israeli who, some 20-odd years ago, massacred 29 Palestinians at a mosque in Hebron on the West Bank. Ben-Gvir calls for the expulsion of Palestinians living inside Israel who are not, quote, loyal to the idea of a Jewish state. In other words, who are not prepared to accept being second-class citizens. 
and he wants the annexation of the West Bank under a regime of explicit apartheid, where Palestinians, even though they had been taken in as part of the Israeli state, would have no right to vote. And then there's the finance minister, Belazel Smotrich, who also oversees the civilian administration in the West Bank. His response to the pogrom? I think the village of Huara needs to be wiped out, and I think the State of Israel should do it. So these are not fringe dwellers. These are senior ministers at the heart of the government, sending a very clear signal to vigilantes amongst the settlers on the West Bank that they have license to attack and kill and drive out of their homes Palestinians. But there's another response to this government, and it's come from within Israeli society. In other words, primarily from Israeli Jews. And that's because the Netanyahu government has set out to reduce the power of the Attorney General and of the courts. Very rarely, but more often than they would like, the courts get in the way of the government's actions against Palestinians and against its, uh, uh, Israel's ability to roll out its power and, and control its territory and take on board more territory. So they want to reduce the power of the courts. And this has produced a huge backlash inside Israel. There are demonstrations. One was said to be 160,000 people in Tel Aviv. That people have blocked the streets. And perhaps even more importantly, because Israel is a highly militarised country where the overwhelming bulk of young people do military service, thousands of Israeli soldiers and reservists say they will refuse army service if the government's legislation passes. And almost every Israeli army and air force unit, including commandos and other elite forces, are facing a revolt from within. The disquiet has spread so widely that even the most abject supporters of Israel inside the Jewish diaspora are speaking out. And so here in Australia, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry and the Zionist Federation of Australia issued a joint statement, essentially pleading with the Netanyahu government to back away and create space for, I'm not sure what, for a dialogue around, around the, the, the law changes. So all of this raises three questions. One, why has Israel become so right-wing? Two, can change come from within? In other words, from Israeli Jews, primarily. And if not, how can change be brought about? Now, I think we need to be clear that the trajectory to the right in Zionism and Zionism is the belief that there should be the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. It's a political philosophy, not a religious one, and has always been contested by some or other members of the Jewish community. The trajectory within Zionism is to the right because the Zionist project involves the constant process, the rolling process of dispossession of the Palestinian people. Because the Zionist movement in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century needed two things in order to bring about its vision. The first was it needed to dispossess the Palestinians. This was not an empty country. This was not an empty land. These were not empty olive groves and orange groves. 
there's been Palestinians living there for millennia. But in order to create a Jewish state, some or many of those Palestinians had to be expelled. And the second factor which uh, Zionism had to take into account was that it was not strong enough by itself to carry out this process. It needed an imperialist sponsor. It needed a great power to support its project, to support its plans. And at various points, the Zionists uh, turned to Tsarist Russia before the Russian Revolution, uh, to Turkey, to Britain, and much more recently to the United States for support. And all of this led to the point of what is known in Arabic as the Nakba, the disaster, the expulsion of something like 700,000 Palestinians from their homes. They left, often with the key in their hand, never to return. And this disaster established an Israeli state in 1948 and left fragments of a Palestinian state. And Zionism began with quite nominally left-wing roots. Many of its founders regarded themselves as socialists and believed that they were going to establish a socialist society in Palestine. Many of them were members of the Labour Party and parties to the left of Labour and were involved in establishing the kibbutzim. The kibbutz was a collective farm, a collective industrial enterprise where everybody would take an equal part in raising the children, generating the wealth, running the farm and so on and so forth. There was always a problem of course. Each and every one of those kibbutzim was built on land stolen at gunpoint from Palestinian people and you cannot build a socialist society on the backs of mass dispossession, oppression and murder. But the Zionists faced from the beginning, even after their initial success in 1948, a demographic contradiction. Because to establish a Jewish state, especially one that claimed to be a democratic state, if it was to be democratic and to be Jewish, there had to be a Jewish majority. And the problem was that in conquering Palestinian land, they took on board within their boundaries uh, a Palestinian minority, which has grown at, uh, uh, to some degree over time. One of the reasons it's grown is that Israel has been an aggressive state that has conquered more and more territory. And in particular in 1967, in a war with neighbouring Arab states, it conquered East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Uh, it also conquered part of Syria and, and part, of, uh, part, part of Egypt. But what the core of that conquest was East Jerusalem and the West Bank, which today members of the Netanyahu government want to see taken on board and made part of is Israel proper. But at every point when they expanded, they found themselves governing over Palestinians who not only rebelled uh, and refused to, to give their assent to conquest, but also if it was to be a democratic society, then the Palestinians could vote. And so there is this intense contradiction within the Zionist project. It calls for democracy, but it calls for a Jewish state. A democratic Jewish state must have a clear Jewish majority if it is to function in its own terms. And that's why the right has become more and more powerful over the decades. The Labour Party has ceased to be the party of government and effectively has ceased to exist. The left is utterly mar marginalised because the right can say 
from the point of view of the Zionist project with with strength and conviction uh, and and with uh, uh, some certainty that it has the answer that it is prepared to do what some sections of the Zionist movement find distasteful it is prepared to conquer it is prepared to expel it is prepared to kill and the right has followed on from the logic of Zionism and now finds itself in the driver's seat it doesn't mean that the Netanyahu government may not be forced to make some uh, backward steps some concessions in the near future but the general dynamic within Israel is a dynamic to the right. So if that's the case, is there any prospect of change from within? Now, I think we need to be clear that the current massive demonstrations are not new. In 2011, for example, there were demonstrations of almost half a million Israelis nationwide against the cost of living and the cost of housing. Half a million people is a very substantial proportion of the Israeli population. But critically, there was no break with Zionism. The protests were about economics, they weren't about politics, and they did not in any way challenge the idea that Israel was a, a Jewish state at the expense of the Palestinians. And that process really continues today. I mentioned before a joint statement from two key Zionist organisations in Australia. But they preface their very, very mild criticisms of the Netanyahu government with statements like this. And I quote, We believe that Israel must forever remain a Jewish and democratic state, rooted in the vision of the prophets. It is from this position of unconditional love and connection that we express our serious concern at the governing coalition's proposals. And if you look at pictures of the rallies in Israel, very, very big, and they are a sea of Israeli flags. This is a mobilization of critics within the Zionist project. These are the loyal opposition. They may have disagreements around specific elements of government policy, but they do not reject the fundamental premise that the Palestinians must be subordinated so that a Jewish state is possible. Sama Salemi, a feminist Palestinian activist and writer, says of the protesters on the streets of Tel Aviv and elsewhere that they are yearning for a Zionism that is gone. This sort of progressive idea of Zionism with a little bit of leftist, leftist politics from the 60s and the 70s. Arguably, it was always uh, a mirage. Now it is absolutely dead in the water. Majd Kayal, who is a Palestinian activist in Haifa, which is in 1948 Israel, so part of the territories seized in the Nakba, said, and again I quote, the two sides conflicting in Israel are fighting over control of the state, which also means controlling the means of our oppression. It's an internal conflict over the means of oppressing the Palestinians. And he continued, there are pilots, soldiers and generals were suddenly very shocked by the burning of Hawara carried out by settlers. But these are the same soldiers who raised hundreds of buildings in Gaza and the West Bank. Now, individuals break from Zionism. Uh, there are a small number of people inside Israel, Jewish people inside Israel, who have broken with Zionism. But they're tiny in number. In reality, 
many Israeli Jews who are sick of the Zionist project tend to migrate uh, and they are amongst us as our friends and colleagues in, uh, in Australia and elsewhere. But the masses have not broken and the masses are showing no sign of breaking. And the reason for that is that from very early on, the nature of the settler colonial project ensured that Jewish workers and their organisations put nation building at the front of their agenda and class struggle well down the list. Jewish workers gained and continue to gain significant material benefits from their support for settler colonialism and the Israeli state. And this was built in from the beginning. The World Zionist Organization, before the establishment of Israel, forged an alliance with Jewish workers' organizations to ensure that they received a, quotes, European standard of living. In other words, one that was much higher than those of Palestinian Arab workers. And to achieve this and to continue with it, the Zionist Trade Union Federation, the Histadrut, organized to exclude Palestinians from the labor market. They didn't attempt to organize them to raise their standard of living to the level of Jewish workers and then raise the standard of living of all workers together. They specifically tried to exclude Palestinians, not just workers, but also petty traders. They would go into markets and destroy the produce on offer from Palestinian uh, peasants and the like. And of course, behind all this, the country has received around $190 billion in US aid since 1945. Now, we used to say that was more than any other country. I think now it would be second to the amount of aid that's being poured into Ukraine. But it is an investment by US imperialism in a country which it can rely upon to protect its interests in the Middle East. And in return, Israeli Jewish workers gain a higher standard of living and that means they are loyal to the, the project, the Zionist project. And this can be illustrated in a number of ways. In 2021, Israel attacked Gaza. In less than two weeks, the attack killed 256 Palestinians and destroyed buildings and infrastructure. And that was the fourth major bombing campaign since 2008. Yet on the day the ceasefire was agreed, an opinion poll found that almost three quarters of Israelis believed the bombing should continue. A separate poll last year found 62% of Israeli Jews agreed that, quotes, Arabs only understand force. Another poll, 2015, found almost half of Israeli Jews believed that Arabs should be expelled from Israel completely. And they make up about one-fifth of the population. And 79% said Jewish citizens deserved preferential treatment, effectively endorsing racist discrimination. And if this story sounds familiar, it is the story, very similar to the story, of how the white working class in apartheid South Africa was wedded to the state, was wedded to the apartheid project, because their standard of living was so much greater than the standard of living of black and so-called coloured South Africans. And individual white South Africans did break from apartheid. And they played sometimes an important and brave role in the anti-apartheid struggle. And we, we honour their commitment as we honour those Israelis who have broken from Zionism to take the side of the Palestinians. But at the end of the day, over 50, 60, 70 years 
of apartheid in South Africa, the white working class never broke with the apartheid project. They never rebelled against the fundamental nature of the state. They were bound by strings of gold to the apartheid project. And we see the same, um, the same pattern underway in Israel today. This makes change from within almost impossible. Highly unlikely, almost impossible. I would be delighted to be proven wrong, but there is no evidence from decade after decade after decade that this is the case. The Jewish-Israeli working class, at the end of the day, puts loyalty to the state ahead of loyalty to class unity. So under these circumstances, what is the way forward? And I think there are three elements to this. The first is the Palestinians themselves, who of course have been resisting for a century or more, uh, all the way through from the beginnings of the first Zionist settlements in the late 19th and early 20th century. The Palestinians have resisted again and again and have launched intifadas, essentially uprisings, the most recent of which was less than two years ago, and united Palestinians not just in the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza, but also in 1948 Israel itself. And that resistance continues. It ebbs and flows, but it continues with street protests, with mass funerals which take on the form of, of political protests. In some cases, with armed guerrilla warfare uh, on, on, on the West Bank and shootings with uh, Israeli settlers and Israeli soldiers. It's worth emphasising that this resistance does not come through the Palestinian Authority, which nominally runs the West Bank. That in itself has been bought out by Israel, promised that at one point in the far, far future, it might run a small Palestinian state. And in return for this, uh, for this mirage, for this fantasy, the Palestine Authority uh, essentially acts as a police force for Israel on the ground in the West Bank, trying to crack down on militants and activists. And they will have to be driven out and, and overthrown as part of any serious up, uprising by Palestinians. And incidentally, I think all of this makes the continuing talk amongst some people around the place, and the Labour government would be part of that process, the idea of a two-state solution, that there can be an Israel and a Palestine side by side as friendly and respectful neighbours, an absolute fantasy. The Palestinian territories and the West Bank are riddled with settlers. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers given tax breaks and military support to steal land on the West Bank, to build roads which only Israeli settlers can use, to turn the West Bank into a grotesque piece of Swiss cheese in which Palestinians often have trouble travelling more than 10 or 15 minutes from their front door without hitting an Israeli roadblock, which they may or may not be able to cross, even if they have the need to work or an urgent medical situation. So the Palestinian resistance is the first and the most fundamental wing of, that resi of the resistance to Zionism. The second is international solidarity. And people in Australia and all around the world, for instance, are trying to build the BDS movement. And BDS means boycott, divestment, sanctions. 
trying to turn Israel into an economic, political and social pariah by saying that good people do not do business with an apartheid state. And we should welcome every step forward that the BDS movement takes. And I think it's worth noting that the fact that even some of the most conservative elements of the Zionist community are speaking out against the Israeli government today opens up a little bit of a space for us to argue for the BDS and against the definition of anti-Semitism, which has been adopted by the coalition federal government and is now being adopted by some universities around the country, a definition which comes from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And it's a definition of anti-Semitism, which basically says people who criticize the essence of Israel's existence as an apartheid state anti-Semites. This is a foul lie because those of us like me, like I'm sure those of you listening who are protesting for the Palestinians, protesting against Israel are not doing so from a hatred of Jews, but actually a hatred of racism against the Palestinians, a hatred of imperialist control, a hatred of the subordination of our Palestinian brothers and sisters. And I'm delighted to say that as the years go by, more and more Jewish people, in particular young Jewish people in the West, are breaking with Zionism and saying, you will not carry out these attacks in our name. We are Jews and we are proud to stand with the Palestinians. And I'm not a young person, but I am one of those Jews who is proud to stand with the Palestinians. And then the third element of the resistance comes from the revolts against neoliberalism, against poverty and against imperialism across the broader region. We saw that in 2011, the Arab Spring, when revolutions rocked Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, momentarily Syria and, 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 and other, other countries. In particular, we saw the process working its way through in Egypt, arguably the most important of the Arab states, the biggest uh, and with the largest working class. What we saw in the uprisings that overthrew the Mubarak dictatorship was the opening of a possibility of challenging the dictatorship of capitalism, the dictatorship of Western imperialism. And it also showed the potential for uh, Arab workers to hold out their hands in friendship with Palestinians. For a brief moment, the the gateway between Egypt and uh, at Rafa in the, in, in the Gaza Strip was opened and there was free movement between Egypt and Palestine. The counter-revolution counter in Egypt was to sh shut that down. But we saw for a moment how there could be real practical solidarity between Arab workers fighting against their bosses and against their dictatorships and the Palestinians. It showed us in a very real way that workers' revolution across the Middle Eastern region is part of a general solution to all forms of oppression and backwardness. And that possibility continues on in the revolts of the Iranian population against the, uh, the religious autocracy in Iran. We see it again in Sudan to the south of Egypt, where there are waves and waves of revolt against um, a, a, a right-wing and neoliberal neo government. You look across the region and there are hundreds of millions of people who support the Palestinians. To fight alongside the Palestinians, they have to fight against their own regimes. 
many of which have now become allies of Israel and are certainly allies of the United States or sometimes uh, of, of Russia. So in summary, my argument is this, that even when people, Jewish citizens inside Israel revolt, they do not revolt against Zionism. They do not revolt against the oppression of the Palestinian people. They do not revolt against apartheid. They do not revolt against subordination. They do not revolt against racism. And therefore, we have to look elsewhere for a way forward for overthrowing uh, Israeli apartheid and the establishment of a genuinely inclusive, democratic, secular state in Palestine, Israel, or whatever the people want to choose that territory at the end of the process. And to reiterate, the three legs of that strategy are the Palestinians themselves, who have never surrendered, never given up, and give every indication that they never will. Secondly, the international solidarity movement, which we can be part of here, and we can argue that it is okay to stand with Palestine, it is not anti-Semitic, uh, and we can be proud of our uh, struggle alongside the Palestinians. And thirdly, we can look to the power of the Arab, Sudanese, Farsi-speaking working class across the region, because when they rise up against their dictators, they are helping the Palestinians rise up against their oppression. Mm -hmm.